welcome back to the popular show with me james a smith it's the first of june it's the start of feral girl summer and there is no girl more feral than david slavic yes hello david how are you doing I'm here and I just want to tell the audience, uh, we always like to give a little bit of a Newfoundland update. I was at the park today and uh, I went to check out the sort of edge of the woods and there was a lynx watching my kids in the woods. And uh, I realized that you're never safe, no matter how, how far away you think you are. The, the lynx was watching the kids. Was, was this a, <laughs> it might have been watching me. I'm, I'm more how, meat than the kids. How big is a lynx? How big is a lynx? Can it a, carry away a, a child? I don't, I don't think he could carry a child, but it, they could be up to about two and a half feet long, about 18 to 24 inches tall. Um, they have paws that are about, um, I want to say about half of a, a man's hand. Uh, and they could be, they could be quite, quite aggressive. But uh, the, the year, the interesting thing about that is that there's a 12 year hair cycle, which that, that's a, the rabbits. And we are in the peak year of the hair. So the lynx tend to stay away from public, which is good. Uh, but apparently they were hanging out. This is the popular show, the show that like a fine episode of Seinfeld takes all those strands of topics that you've been worried about and brings them together in a not always comedic conclusion. Uh, we want to say hello to the Sublation Media audience on YouTube, as well as our regular uh, podcast audience on the podcast stream and we especially want to thank our patreon supporters uh, and other big money donors uh we've got to say hello to joe uh dara uh roberto uh and everyone else who signed up to patreon over the last uh, few days uh we really appreciate all of you um david we've got an amazing guest and a really great uh, show lined up today maybe you want to introduce Natalie for us. So Natalie Shore is one of my favorite sort of writers on the left. She's a bit heterodox in her approach in that she she often makes people on the left angry, but also people on the right angry. Uh, she's, uh, you know, just a, just a brilliant wordsmith. Um, she has a great piece in the New Republic where she's a columnist called it's Stop Trying to Extract Larger Lessons from the Amber Heard Johnny Depp Trial. And uh, what she does in this article and we'll discuss further is something that I think she does in a lot of her articles where she really zeroes in on sort of like an understanding that people have about uh, sort of a topic and sort of pulls out the important parts and points out where people are misunderstanding it. And I, I think that's one of the like key public services of a journalist. And I think you're doing it great now. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah. How are you, Natalie? You're doing pretty good. Uh, I was excited to hear about the links. <laughs> yeah, it's quite it's quite fun. Um, we frequently have them in the yard. Uh, one day I was uh, hanging up a, a, an old quilt and I was uh, getting the sea breeze from the ocean and the quilt blew up and there was a lynx right in front of me. Wow. And uh, yeah. Newfoundland just seems like one of these like fascinating storybook places that yeah is unlike anywhere else. I've seen it in, you know, photos and video, but haven't been there in real life, but it seems yeah. really interesting. Well, it was funny when I, when I married my wife, I, I didn't quite, I had to go up and see her father. Her father is a very nice, but quite scary man. And uh, he, he didn't approve because he didn't know. And he said, you know, my daughter, she, she went to Harvard, she should get married or whatever. I don't know what he was thinking, but uh, you know, she's better than this to marry, marry an American. And a mere podcaster. I, a humble podcaster. A humble podcaster. <laughs> and 
when I started to look at it, I said, this is the most beautiful place I've ever seen. And I, I didn't really realize she was from here. And now, now we live here. Uh, and uh, for those people interested in staying here, we will have an Airbnb available in the fall. <laughs> Very exciting. So, so this uh, this is going out on on Sunday, uh, but we're recording on Wednesday. Uh, it's one of those nights on the popular show where we're recording in the the white heat of the moment because it's only been a couple of hours since uh, the jury arrived at its deliberation on the Amber Heard uh, and Johnny Depp uh, case. Uh, people are melting down on on Twitter as they. Uh, I want to do. Um, Natalie, you, you've been paying a lot of attention to uh, this case. I wondered if you could sort of introduce it uh, to the audience uh, and why, why, why it matters, why people should care. Sure. Uh, well, I think the reason that people should care is um, perhaps uh, this is probably the biggest news story in the United States or has been one of the biggest news stories for the past uh, six weeks or so. Um, the facts of the case are basically that uh, Johnny Depp, movie star, and Amber Heard, uh, slightly lower tier movie star, were married for about 15 months uh, from the beginning of 2015 till uh, mid-2016 and had, by all accounts, an incredibly tumultuous relationship. Um, at the end of the relationship, she filed for divorce and a temporary restraining order. Uh, they end up settling um, and, you know, releasing a statement. Uh, and then a couple things happen. Um, a, a few years later, uh, the Sun tabloid in the UK runs a story uh, saying that Johnny Depp's a wife beater. Why does J.K. Rowling still want to cast him in her latest, I don't know, it's some Harry Potter prequel. Uh, and so he sued that tabloid in the UK for defamation. Um, and then I believe concurrently, um, Amber Depp, uh, or I'm sorry, Amber Heard wrote uh, an op-ed toward the end of 2018 for the Washington Post, uh, basically um, uh, not explicitly, but implicitly identifying herself as a uh, victim of domestic violence or a public figure associated with domestic abuse, um, who essentially, you know, experienced the full force of society's wrath toward women who come forward. Um, the online headline included uh, a, a sexual violence complaint that she had never made publicly before. Um, you know, there's a big picture of her on it. And everyone understood it to be about Johnny Depp. Uh, you know, it specifically marked two years before and two years before she had been on the cover of People magazine and was all over TMZ for filing this um, uh, restraining order temporarily. Um, people largely know her for having been married to Johnny Depp, who is, of course, a way bigger star. Uh, and so he sued her for defamation in Virginia, uh, which is where the servers of the Washington Post are. So that's how they were able to get jurisdiction in Fairfax County, Virginia, uh, which I think also there was some legal strategy underlying it in terms of, you know, it being a solicitous jurisdiction for uh, defamation suits. Um, so the case in the UK uh, was decided against Depp, um, and that was ruled in about, um, I think, March of 2020 or so. It was during COVID uh, early on. And uh, this case just went to trial a few months ago. 
Um, they brought cameras in the courtroom because the judge was concerned that, you know, it would be um, a feeding frenzy otherwise with, you know, too many, too many media folks trying to get in and, and that kind of thing. So decided to take the pressure off by having cameras. Uh, and I think about a million people have been streaming it a day. Um, you know, basically the facts of the case, uh, the, the, the legal questions have been whether she made defamatory statements about Johnny Depp in, you know, implying that he was uh, a domestic abuser, et cetera. Um, the case ended up being largely about whether or not uh, her allegations were true, whether or not abuse actually happened. Both of them testified. Both of them had witnesses who testified, et cetera. It lasted about six weeks. Uh, today, the jury delivers a verdict. Um, found all three of his um, claims to have been defamatory and surprisingly found one of her three claims to have been defamatory for much lower damages. Uh, that was sort of a long spiel, but just wanted to get everyone caught up just in case they weren't aware. Um, you know, as for what what this means and why it's important, as I said, it's, it's incredibly popular. Um, Viewers have been pretty overwhelmingly on Johnny Depp's side. Uh, there's been a lot of weird social media algorithms really pushing this at people on a constant basis at a level that I think is some, not something that I'm used to, uh, you know, just finding this in my feed all the time. I think there can be uh, a misogynist tinge to plenty of these, you know, Depp stands, these diehard Depp fans who are tweeting about it all the time. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of concern that on the, on the part of the broader left, I would say that this represents the, you know, downfall of Me Too, <laughs> that people's, um, you know, eagerness to side with Depp uh means that we have stopped believing women etc um so you know whether or not this is a referendum on misogyny uh what it means in terms of you know how we treat women in the public sphere people have been grappling with these questions uh pretty constantly over the course of six weeks yeah i think it's it's really interesting like from a number of strands uh in in the first place it, it takes us back to 2018 when that op-ed was written right in the in, in the heart of me too and offers a, a kind of relitigation in some ways of, of events that went on there although you in your article um plead a certain amount of caution um over that it's interesting from the point of view of the way that big court cases are are a very particular kind of interactive media event now of course you know that's been true of a lot of big cases in the past um but i i mean i, I haven't been trying to pay attention to this but it's really been pushed on me yeah. uh you know twitter has been full of it so i'm sure that other social media that people use um have uh, have been trying to sort of make similar gains out of it and there's also a kind of cultural interest like especially with um the the, the kind of um well, the stuff going on on TikTok that, that you alluded to, that this sort of fandom culture that has uh, erupted around this. So it's kind of culturally interesting and not least from a generational perspective. For people who haven't seen this sort of thing, I'll just drop a, a few kind of clips now of the kinds of um, reaction uh, that people have been having over on um, over on TikTok to this case. You still haven't donated the $7 million divorce settlement to charity. Isn't that right? 
Incorrect. I pledged the entirety no, of Ms. the settlement, $7 million to charity, and I, I intend to fulfill Heard. those obligations. Heard. That's not my question. Please what try was to question? answer my question. Sitting here today, you have not donated the $7 million, donated, not pledged, donated the $7 million divorce settlement to charity. I use pledge and donation synonymous with one another. They but I the don't. Ms. Heard. I don't use it synonymously. That's how donations are paid. Ms. Hurd, respectfully, that's not my question. So as of today, you have not donated, paid $7 million of your divorce settlement to charity, right? I have not been able to fulfill those, uh, those uh, obligations yet. And that's because you did want something, didn't you? I didn't want anything. Heartbroken. And I sat there for a long time and I eventually Turned the key and drove home. <laughs> what did you do after that? So it's just been an extraordinary and bizarre culture of reenactments, of lip syncing, of reperforming kind of elements from the case, of of, of uh, zeroing in on mannerisms uh, and um, yeah, kind of facial expressions and, and, and figures of speech from especially Amber Heard's statements in court. Uh, and this is being done especially by younger people, by the, the, the huge uh, uh, Gen Z, uh, Gen Z um, audience on TikTok. So uh, maybe we could start there. What, what's been your read about what's, distinct, what's been distinctive about that aspect of the mediatization of the case? Um, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm 35 years old. I am not a TikTok user. <laughs> so it's a little harder for me to speak about that specifically. Uh, I do think that, you know, people who are horrified by this and horrified by the misogynist tinge of some of the, you know, giddy social media behavior, I think they have a point. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think that there is certainly an intense amount of vitriol uh, pointed toward this woman. Um, as I said, you know, there's something's got to be going on with the social media algorithms, mm -hmm. um, the way that, you know, they are just pushing. I mean, I, you can scroll, at least on Twitter, you can scroll down and, you know, see Johnny Depp, Amber Heard coverage on a pretty constant basis, whether yeah. or not you're even looking for it. Um, I, I mean, I can't think of any other story in recent memory that's been, you know, thrust in front of eyeballs yeah. as aggressively as this one uh, across platforms, you know, Facebook to um, Instagram as well. Um, certainly TikTok. Um, you know, I mean, I think that people are treating this like a topical media spectacle because it is. I mean, it's the most, it's the most watched thing. It's, you know, this massive news story, uh, you know, that probably speaks to certain pathologies of our culture, just as anything does. But it's not too hard to understand why people are glued to this. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, extremely famous people um, airing out the dirtiest possible laundry in front of a massive audience. Um, and, one of them is lying about some of the most serious things imaginable. I mean, I think they're all lying at times, but one is, you know, almost certainly lying 
more often about very serious things. And um, there's, there's a lot of drama there. So I, I have a very sort of general question. Like how does this fit into the vibe shift that we've been talking about in the media? Like, I think that there is something going on and I think zoomers are like more representative of this because they're like, when you were younger, you were like sort of more, on, your figure was more on the pulse. You know, like you're talking to your friends and, and I actually don't know how it works in the post COVID world. I, I can't imagine what hanging out is now, but are we seeing sort of a vibe shift in how people approach these sort of like me too type stories where people are being more, you know, I, I, I think that Joe Biden might've been the sort of like leading edge of this trend where we're like, okay, there was like credible, you know, stories about Joe Biden, but like, he's our guy. The other guy's worse. You and know, also, I mean, also him going to his inauguration with all the trappings of, a kind of woke PMC yeah. millennial language. Maybe that was sort of a kind of jumping of the shark of that of that kind of idiom. I, I mean, I was just wondering if, like, uh, this case has been really forced on us to try to create a sort of men versus women, like, content creation culture war. But actually what's been created is more of a generational culture war between woke pro-me2 millennials mm. and the Zoomers coming up below them who are kind of looking for their own language. I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I think there, there's probably something to a lot of those theses. Um, you know, as far as I can tell, there's definitely a strong right wing contingent that's definitely glommed onto this case. Like within a couple minutes, the, uh, you know, a few, a few like ultra right wing accounts tweeted out pictures of Johnny Depp, like cheering, I think some production still still from some of his movies, things like that. So, you know, obviously making it very clear that they're on his side. I mean, so what I wrote, what I wrote about was trying to resist the idea that this does reflect or that it necessarily should reflect uh, any political narrative. Um, and, and where I came at that was um, that, you know, as far as I can tell, the, the the broader left media space, and I think to some extent academia, um, are are very ardently on her side. Um, you know, have argued that she is an imperfect victim, but is clearly telling the truth. And if believe women means anything, it means supporting someone who is getting just dragged through the gauntlet by her clearly abusive ex who is, you know, putting her through this horrific spectacle, um, dragging her through a defamation case. Obviously abusers do use the court system a lot. Um, and I think the problem with that narrative is that this is not a case that fits that fact pattern very well. Um, I mean, I, I think that I, I fundamentally don't understand how anyone could look at all the facts of this case honestly and not come to the conclusion that she's lying and she's not credible and he sucks in a lot of ways. I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, make a hard case for Johnny Depp. I'm not, you know, there have been hashtag, justice for Johnny Depp posts all over the place. And I think people who want to turn this into a righteous fight of their own um, 
because I do think that a lot of the people who, you know, are, are commenting about this from the perspective that I just talked to or spoke to um, from Amber Heard's side are are coming from a righteous place and, you know, are, are making these arguments that they can be passionate about for political reasons. And the one I'm making is not one that I'm passionate about. Um, you know, this is an asshole movie star whose ex, I, I do think, lied about him and i think that the the evidence makes that pretty plain um that that doesn't mean that he was perfect that means that he i, I think he did you know uh, behave pretty reprehensibly in a lot of cases um but i but i do think that it seems clear that she made up uh key defamatory details that um you know are, are exactly what she was invoking uh with with the op-ed um and whether or not it, it rises to the definition of technical defamation, or if you want to talk about the wisdom of, you know, using the court system in that way, or the precedent that it set, you know, blah, 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 all of those things. I, I'm like agnostic about <laughs> things. I'm not saying that it should have happened. But if he is right, I mean, if she is, if, if she did make all of this up and, you know, tarnish his, like, I, I understand why one would use defamation law in this way if she did, in fact, give him, you know, a hat, uh, something to hang his hat on in terms of launching a suit. Um, so, yeah, I, I just don't think that this is a case to to try to turn into a referendum about politics because it's not a case that fits uh, a political narrative that that I or anyone else really wants to forward. I think that this is an unusual terrible situation can i ask you a question and this maybe this is kind of like uh, a little bit technical a little bit outside of the bounds of what we were talking about mm -hmm. uh, this op-ed this op-ed uh yeah. it was allegedly or like proven to be yeah. uh drafted by aclu staff mm -hmm. now i've <clears throat> i've worked at a think tank i've written pieces for other people or like, you know, different organizations, politicians, things like that. And this was quite common. Like, so people, what if you want to understand how that works, is it's quite common that somebody will just slap this on your desk. You're like, donor wants this. Can you do this? You're like, absolutely. I'll, I'll write Hillary Clinton's marijuana policy, for example. Yeah. So I'm just for just I'm for, not saying that's a truth. I, I did write that, but just for <laughs> listeners, this, this is the, the American yeah. Civil Liberties Union yeah. to whom yeah. Heard was a, a donor, although they later yeah. complained that she didn't see through all the donations yeah. after the op-ed had come out. They co-wrote yeah. the uh, op-ed that yeah. uh, she's now being sued for. I, yeah. I think that's now, a very interesting dimension. A lot of people are very shocked by this, but I, I mean, I could see how if it fit. I'm shocked in a way that it doesn't fit into their sort of mission statement, but I'm not shocked that they did something for a donor. Um, what was interesting is that there's an Elon Musk connection, and I don't know if you can address this, but there are some people saying that the that donation was covered by Elon Musk, our civil liberties uh, giant or whatever. <laughs> I found that angle quite interesting. I mean, just this trial has everything. Yeah. So basically, um, you know, the, the donations came up. So her divorce from Johnny Depp and the settlement, uh, she got, I believe, seven, seven million in like forgiveness of joint debt. So like he took on, you know, mortgages from their joint property or whatever. And um, she got seven million 
in in cash, I believe. And, uh, you know, people who were skeptical of her story then uh, were, were basically saying that, you know, she, she had done this for money, were saying that she is a gold digger. And she, you know, very pointedly rejected that and said, no, I'm not even keeping this money. I want nothing. Uh, I actually, I donated it to half to the ACLU and half to the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. Um, you know, she swore to that under oath in the UK. And, um, you know, a lot of her defenders have said like, well, you know, she pled, she shouldn't have said donated, but this is how donations work. And I think to some extent that is true, but I think it's also very clear that when you see how she was using these statements in context, and when you see how the judge in the UK, uh, you know, took took this statement and put it in context as far as his understanding of the case. Um, it, it really was meant to, um, you know, mislead people into thinking that there couldn't possibly be a financial motive here. Um, so she did begin to, I think she paid the first 250,000. Um, and then right after her divorce, I think overlapping, but you know, who cares? Uh, she she started dating Elon Musk um, at some point in you know 2016, and he or you know a, a, a financial um, entity associated with him um, donated the next uh, I want to say five or eight hundred thousand something in that ballpark, uh, and basically donated it in her name against the total, uh, and then about. 14 months after the original divorce settlement, uh, she she was sued for uh, the first, or, yes, I think it was about 14 months later, uh, she was sued for the op-ed um, after the, the, final, the final payment came in um, and then eventually stopped making those payments to the, the ACLU or to uh, the Children's Hospital. See, all of this is happening in a realm that is so far above the lives of ordinary people. And so, you know, whatever the, the kind of dynamics of domestic violence in it are so different to the dynamics of domestic violence as most uh, people, particularly women, experience it, that I think you're, you're absolutely dead right that this kind of um, extrapolation of a politics from these highly complex and highly idiosyncratic romantic relationships is actually impossible in some ways that 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 is actually a critique of me to itself which which effectively you know did precisely that but i mean this aclu thing I, I think is fascinating and really kind of points to like the material basis of me too or the institutional basis of me too in some ways i mean the fact that um the aclu have so royally fucked this up as to get her done for defamation you'd think that these people would have some lawyers to look over <laughs> look over the thing and stop precisely this case happening but um a, another um a, a kind of institutional thing about me too that i saw being observed uh this week was um actually the way that uh the the magazines the online magazines the online ecosystem that you would expect to be taking up amber heard's side in this against the evil, nihilistic uh, Zuma TikTokers and outright people taking Johnny Depp's side, uh, Salon, Jezebel, The Cut, uh, Teen Vogue, all of them peaked around 2018, peaked during Me Too, and have been on a real downward trajectory um, since, according to the statistics I saw. So uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to see that, like, 
trying to do a Me Too battle for the soul of feminism in 2022, like is dealing with totally different terrain to how they were trying to deal with uh, deal with that uh, uh, when all this started in 2018. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that I, I think that the decline of digital media um, has a lot of variables variables uh, associated with it. I don't necessarily think it's you know because of Me Too that yeah. digital media has. Uh, ceased to be profitable or has like run out of whatever venture capital that it was burning off and never was super just not profitable enough given the you know growth projection that they were trying to sell shares on or whatever the issue is um you know i mean my, my critique of the the me too movement and i think that you know i, I think that it did introduce a lot of important cultural change. Uh, I think that, you know, some of the conversations that it invoked were very important. Um, I think ultimately it was too focused on, you know, ultra competitive professional fields and too focused on individual catharsis when it should have been about building worker power. Um, like, I think that, you know, however many years after Me Too, I think, you know, that the, the death of Me Too uh, isn't, isn't people not believing Amber Heard with her myriad problems with her narrative. It's the fact that, you know, working class people aren't better able to contest sexual harassment in most yeah. cases mm -hmm. uh, than, than they were before. They don't have, you know, stronger unions. They don't have, um, you know, better labor protections. Uh, you know, in some cases, I don't want to make a complete blanket statement, but, you know, that to me is the tragedy of Me Too, uh, that this that this wasn't framed as more of a labor yeah. issue for yeah. people. Ac actresses rather than chambermaids. Mm. I, I saw Tarana Burke uh, speak last, was two years ago. And what that was exactly what she said. You know, she said, this is often about, you know, and, and I had a lunch with Kimberly Crenshaw about two years, same time, around two years ago. And mm -hmm. they said, both said, this is about girls working at Burger King like more so than it is about movie stars or, you know, Harvey Weinstein or whatever. There's like real material interest in people who are like, you know, the subaltern, you know, really suffering. And we're not seeing that played out or change. Well, if you want to, if you want to deep dive uh, further on the, uh, on the deep state connections to me to go back to uh, our episode of about a year ago with Tara Reid. You're listening to The Popular Show, or some of you are watching it uh, even. We're delighted to be joined by Natalie Shaw. Um, I'm going to break in and say that if you're enjoying the show, if you like the guests we get, uh, the conversations we have, then we'd love it if you would help us sustain the project over at patreon.com forward slash the popular pod, where you're going to get the full version of this conversation and many more. Uh, or if you just want to drop us a donation, you can do that at PayPal. And we also have uh, the uh, Buy Us a Coffee uh, app as well. Um, we're going to carry on talking with Natalie. Um, uh, some of the other great work you've been doing um, at, uh, at the New Republic this year um, has been on Havana syndrome. Uh, I, I wondered if we could um, get into this. By, by the end of this conversation, this episode, the Patreon episode, all of these threads in your work will have come together as one coherent 
uh, item, but people are going to have to uh, wait to see what the punchline uh, is as far as that's concerned. But uh, t tell us about Havana syndrome, because actually this is exactly the sort of thing that slips out of the news agenda, and then you're reminded of it and think, what the did that actually happen? Um, what, what, was, uh, what was Havana syndrome? Yeah, so Havana syndrome uh, started in 2016, the very end of 2016, uh, basically um, right after Trump's election, which obviously not a lot of people saw coming and uh, threatened to completely reverse, throw off course, um, all of the uh, scene staging that had been happening in Cuba. Uh, Obama, you know, reopened diplomatic relations in 2015. Uh, many, many more uh, diplomats and spies uh, under diplomatic cover ended up uh, being transferred to Cuba, building new professional and personal relationships, bringing their kids to go to school over there, the whole shebang. Um, and then Trump gets elected and obviously had a very different orientation toward uh, Cuba and detente and uh, people's lives are thrown into disarray. I think on a personal level, we can understand just how stressful that would be. Um, you know, whatever you think about people in foreign service or CIA, uh, you know, on a personal level, like, yeah, they moved their kids, they moved their families, they had been there for a year in some cases, blah, blah. Um, so very, very stressful, uncertain, confusing time. In this context, uh, a couple people at a time started to experience really bizarre symptoms um, stationed in and around Havana. Um, you know, they'd they'd hear a strange sound and and get headaches, um, bad fatigue, dizziness, um, nausea in some cases, uh, and you know, couldn't figure out what it was. Uh, the fact that it was associated for many people with the same piercing noise before the onset of symptoms um, got the government very nervous that this could be, um, uh, the, the first theory was a sonic weapon um, being used against a, a lot of the original uh, so-called victims were, you know, under diplomatic cover in the CIA. Uh, so they thought that they were being targeted specifically. Very early on, um, you know, when you actually go and reconstruct what happened, uh, very early on, the State Department and CIA basically sits its people down and says, listen, uh, we think that there might be mysterious attacks uh, on you and your family. Um, if you start feeling things like headache, nausea, uh, vertigo, you know, it could be uh, you could be being attacked with a weapon that we're not fully aware of. Uh, just give us a heads up if you feel any of those symptoms. Um, so they were warning that the Cubans had a sound weapon. That, uh, that, was could, the, that was the original hypothesis. That yeah, would that give you chronic illness and anxiety. Um, well, uh, anxiety wasn't wasn't part of the no. discussion at mm. that point. Um, that that would induce symptoms, you know, that are largely associated with chronic malaise, chronic anxiety, chronic depression, no. stress, etc. Which, um, which is otherwise called being a State Department official. I mean, so human being. So, so I, so I, I'm gonna go off a bit in my DC capacity. Um, 
people who work the State Department are some of the most selfless people alive. They do a lot of good work. Mm-hmm. They, in my experience, are also the most neurotic people I've ever met in my life. Which <laughs> is, and I mean that in the nicest way possible, like some of the kindest, you know, like they're fastidious. The State Department like process to get hired is extremely hard. There's a number of tests that are like extremely, you have to be extremely fastidious just to pass those tests. There's a number of protocols you have to learn to be in the State Department and be successful. It's uh, it's the last bastion of like actual old world like comedy that you that we have in the United States. We don't have that here, you know, like in, in that way. I find in my experience dealing with those people that that is often aligned with other things that make them very good at that, that make their lives less desirable. And when I heard about this, I said, oh, these people are just having anxiety. And that, like, that was my first reaction, just because I knew that these people were having background anxiety anyway. And then when Trump came in, they Trump got rid of the bookshelves in the State Department and all these different things. There was they felt under attack already. Is yeah. that possible that there was like an environmental reaction? Yeah, I mean, you know, I kind of set it up with the with the job stress to to suggest that I think that the the stage was certainly set for uh, a mass sociogenic illness. Um, you know, a very like pressure cooker situation uh, where, you know, people are in a somewhat insular community. They hear about really terrible and frightening things happening to their neighbors. Um, you know, the later, later on, it was discovered that the high pitched screeching sound that people described and that other people recognized. And I think, you know, heard in some cases and then developed symptoms as well, uh, that that was a species of cricket that a lot of them had outside of their windows that, you know, if you listen to the sound recordings was particularly loud when the mating call like bounces off walls and stuff has, has an echo. Um, So the original theory was that this was a, sonic weapon because of the association with the screech and the similarity of the symptoms and um, what appears to me in hindsight to be an utter lack of familiarity with, you know, symptoms of malaise and functional symptoms. And as you said, symptoms of anxiety and depression, like these are, these can be very debilitating things. They're fairly common. Um, And so then Havana syndrome starts spreading around the world. Uh, There were cases in China, uh, and then they trickle outward. There are cases in Russia. There are a few cases in the United States. All all experienced by U.S. diplomats, State Department people, CIA people. Um, Primarily, yes. I think some, some, uh, you know, congressional staff who work on foreign issues, but people who are like, you know, part of the national security blob or blob adjacent. NATSEC people is definitely, you know, like the NATSEC universe is definitely uh, what is experiencing this. And it's taken incredibly seriously, Um, obviously by the people experiencing it who, you know, I think it's one thing to, to hear about this publicly, but then you have a very credible friend and you don't think that they're crazy and they have this experience and you take it seriously. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the, the way that it, the way that it played out and, um, you know, the, 
the credulous, like this did become a very serious issue within the government. Um, I think at first the Trump government uh, was, was kind of, you know, dismissing it and used it as a pretext to shut down or scale back their Cuban operations as they'd already planned to. Um, uh, but, but, you know, then, then they kind of tried to shut it down. And I think that that sort of galvanized some of the hashtag resistant types, uh, yeah. who in the government who, you know, thought this looked like a cover up. Uh, and so then when Biden became president, there was sort of this reaction of, you know, now that the good guys are in charge, we're really going to get to the bottom of Havana syndrome. And they put together all these task forces and cases just grew and grew and grew and grew. Um, and it was never anything but mass sociogenic illness. Um, so so I'll give you an example of just the type of stuff that was going on at this time when it transitioned from Obama to, to Trump. I was working on, uh, I was working with a trade mission sort of like PR firm at the time. And uh, this is when I was working with Michael Brooks at the time. And we, I was doing this during the daytime. And we were gonna throw an electronica concert at the opening of like sort of Cuba US relationships and like we're like doing all this sort of stuff. And then Trump came in and it just shut. Just like shut all of, all of a sudden. That's what I started to hear about Havana syndrome and sort of these other things. Is when sort of like relations sort of shut down and like things were changing and it seemed to be related more to tension that people were having around this changing relationship than it had to do with like actual physical physicality so spooks got trump derangement syndrome too basically well i think i think that that was especially true after it started to become associated with russia so you know only in the very early days did people think oh maybe the cubans are behind this and i think that the you know republicans like i said i think that they kind of um trumped trumped that up in order to have a justifiable pretext to do what they already wanted to do, which was scale back diplomatic relations again, uh, the way that they had been. Um, but then there were some, so another way that I think people have gotten Havana syndrome wrong is uh, a lot of people have said things like, oh, well, you just believe everything the CIA says. And this is not something that the government was necessarily peddling. I think that, you know, overall, the agencies were, you know, in an official capacity, pretty uh, hesitant about this, I think, until somewhat recently when Biden really started to, to push it as an issue. But for the first several years, I think the, um, you know, the agencies themselves were very doubtful. But then you had these, um, you know, whistleblowers, basically, people who saw themselves as whistleblowers who were, you know, they thought they were doing this righteous crusade on behalf of the victims of Havana syndrome. Uh, and so when it sort of became associated with Russia, that people started saying, you know, the Soviet Union did have a history of researching, they, they decided that the sonic weapons no longer made sense. Um, you know, if you had a sonic weapon, it would make such a loud noise. So it wouldn't be just like a, a weird beep. So they came up with this alternate theory uh, that it was a microwave weapon and that the sound was not an actual sound, that it was basically this um, phenomenon called the Fry effect, which uh, I, I don't remember the actual mechanisms, but uh, if you are exposed to um, microwave uh, microwaves at a high enough level, then, then you might hear noises that aren't there. 
Um, that was, you know, a, a ridiculous theory because, uh, you know, the we already knew that the sound was crickets at this point. So, you know, you, knew, you, didn't, you didn't have to keep, uh, you know, accommodating the existence of the sound in your theory to uh, encapsulate this, but, but it still stuck around. Um, and, you know, microwaves, uh, like I said, had been, had been studied by the, the Soviet Union and people kind of posited, okay, this is something that, you know, could, could be invisible and could hypothetically cause damage somewhat akin to what seems to be causing this. Um, but it was all very grasping at straws. Uh, but I think people were, you know, especially like, you know, this group of foreign policy, Nat Secchi, uh, Democrats, um, you know, Adam Schiff, uh, Mark Warner, um, Gene Sheehan, those types, um, the, the very like hawkish moderates, they really loved this. They really banged the drums on Havana syndrome very hard because it allowed them to be like, you know, anti-Russia and tough and that sort of thing. Um, and, it, and it just went on for years and years and years. And, and I just got so into this because I'm very interested in, um, sociogenic illness and, uh, you know, mind, mind, body issues and health. Uh, and this I thought was a very classic sociogenic illness. Um, and, you know, sociogenic, uh, what, what I think of is that, um, you know, I, I've always emphasized, I think that the people who claim to be suffering from Havana syndrome, many of whom, you know, stayed sick for a long time, uh, I think that they were being utterly sincere and I think that they were quite debilitated. I think that we all know people in our lives who have been, you know, seriously debilitated by symptoms like these. Um, and, you know, mental, mental health can, can drive very, very powerful suffering. Um, you know, there are all sorts of symptoms that just don't, that, that, that harm us, that aren't, you know, organic disease as we would think of it. Um, but the, the, the diagnosis itself and the sociological understanding of the illness, I think does have, um, like a social contagion factor and that that was certainly happening here. So I think in the early, in the early days when it was still in Cuba, I think that it was a very classic, uh, sociogenic illness, the sort of thing where, you know, if you're, if you're in a room and all of a sudden you hear that there's poisonous gas in the room, um, a lot of people will start like choking and writhing and that sort of thing because they are, you know, induced with terror and belief, blah, blah. I think that some cases were probably close to that. Um, but a lot of them are just, you know, like misappropriate, or I'm sorry, misascribing symptoms to something that didn't actually cause them. Mm -hmm. So we do know that things like, you know, headaches, chronic fatigue, dizziness, etc. All of the symptoms that these people are experiencing are incredibly common and experienced by, you know, a certain number of people each year. And then I think that they just kind of started getting matched to this diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and it just it went on for a very long time. And, you know, the the more that the more that media peddles these things, then like the sociogenesis continues. And only when um, people kind of back away from it, as I you know, I've, I've had a, I've, I've had a, a news alert for this for years. Um, it's, it's finally dying down. And, you know, I think that it's, it's a pretty discredited idea at this point. And, you know, sure enough, we're not seeing cases anymore.
Hmm. Yeah, well, we want to connect this to the question of long COVID uh, in a bit in the patrons episode. So if you want to hear us talking about that, you're going to have to get over to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod. But I mean, I've got, I've got a couple of sort of takes on, on Havana syndrome to, to chuck at you and see what you think. So uh, on the one hand, I mean, for all David speaking of the, the good work of his friends in the State Department, um, here's the vulgar anti-imperialist reading of the situation that this is the, the, the weight and trauma of overseeing uh, a crumbling empire finally kind of getting under people's skin trump being the last straw i suppose you know david if you're saying that this is kind of the last corner of american governance that still has those kind of old standards of uh, of, of uh, the sort of previous american ruling class i guess the difference is that they don't drink enough to keep uh, all of those um, <laughs> kind of traumatic actions uh, at bay anymore. Um, so, I mean, th there's the kind that's of generational. Of I yeah, think that's generational. I think the younger employees are probably more likely to experience. If I add, yeah. this is non-scientific, but I'm going to say that I would say 45 and under probably more likely to experience this. Yeah. Because and the also, guys 45 and older are all drinking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, the most prominent prominent uh Havana syndrome patients were definitely in their 50s. Um okay. and Mark Palmaropoulos off the top of my head were yeah. two of the, you know, biggest ones to go public. Yeah. Um overall I don't know the numbers because, you know, only only a certain fraction of them came forward publicly, uh but I don't I don't necessarily think it skewed one way or another. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I I do just find it funny. I that, actually like uh, to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I do just find it funny that they 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 couldn't be more like well, I don't know, worldly wise about the arrival of Trump, and that they effectively acted like the 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 craziest uh, basic lib uh, on 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 Twitter with this. Um, the other thing I was thinking was how much this reminds me of the 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 kind of projection that goes on in the American security services, where historically, whatever they say the other countries are doing is what they're doing at the time. I'm thinking of the way that uh, in the 50s, the CIA put all, out all this stuff about Chinese brainwashing and, and all that goes into the, the Manchurian candidate story uh, at precisely the time that the MK Ultra experiments in exposing civilian populations to LSD to um, experiment on, on whether people's brains could be controlled and you know all the gory appalling details in uh, David Talbot's uh, book The Devil's Devil's Chessboard about um, you know these allegations of individual um, you know murders and so on carried out by people who were known to the security services shall we say um, I, I, I just think that, that that kind of pattern of projection is very interesting to find this stuff being leaked or whistleblown by people in these organizations that, that initially the claim is Cuba. Oh, no, Russia has, has invented, and it bears repeating, a sound weapon that gives you anxiety. Um, that claim is going on at, at just the time that we're getting drip-fed this stuff about, oh, well, maybe there was um, a lab leak in Wuhan. Maybe, oh, actually, Fauci's... Um, you know, uh, uh, trust was investing money in the in the research that's going on here. Oh, we no, we don't have a, a a biological weapons facility in Ukraine. We have a 
biological center. Um, this kind of, kind of, without kind of exaggerating what the kind of facts of those matters are, it, it's very interesting to find um, simultaneously uh, kind of claims of disease being used as a weapon of war by America's rivals at, at precisely the time when they're being, um, they're, they're having exactly those accusations directed at them fairly or unfairly. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I think that the, the reason I went so hard at Havana syndrome, besides it just, you know, becoming obsessed with it and like wanting to debunk it and just feeling, you know, completely exasperated by anyone's credulousness about what was going on here. Um, I think that it's very straightforwardly bad to, you know, have this unchecked narrative that uh, a foreign power is attacking uh, Americans um, everywhere in the world, chasing them down with ray guns. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, eventually that does beg a response. Uh, and so, you know, I think that there, there was at one point a very real concern that, you know, if this, if this became uh, like a salient enough issue that, you know, it, it drummed up support with public. I mean, certainly like, self-identified Havana syndrome victims were starting to organize and lobby and become this force who, you know, was really, they, they were really pushing for some sort of response. Some people in the Senate were starting to, to chat about that. So I think that those things were very dangerous because we are, um, you know, an aggressive imperial nation by, by many accounts, as you mentioned, um, you know, as for, as for the moral injury, thesis. Um, th that's been something that brought, people have brought up. And I think that, that that does make a certain amount of sense. But, you know, kind of like what David was saying, a lot of the people who, you know, started identifying as Havana syndrome sufferers were, you know, low level consular officers and stuff within the State Department. It certainly wasn't, you know, only people who had had done terrible shit. And I think a lot of the people who got this and had done terrible shit were like very proud of the things that they did. Um, you know, the most the most prominent uh, Havana syndrome patient who like became the chief whistleblower was this guy named Mark Polymeropoulos, who was a pretty high up guy in the CIA. And basically my, you know, psychological read on him is that he, you know, very high up in the CIA, very much associated his own identity with the CIA, um, you know, thought, thought very highly of himself as a tough guy, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, develops, develops this illness that makes him have to retire early. And like, that's hard. That happens to some people. And, and I think that people go through various forms of grief over it. I'm not, you know, I think that the guy sucks for many reasons, but I'm not going to like mock him for that. That That's really hard. And I think that, you know, for him, um, he, he didn't want to see himself as someone who was felled by like, who couldn't hack it, who, who you know, got, got depressed and couldn't handle a few headaches and blah, blah, blah. So, so instead, um, you know, he, he was he was a hero who was felled by an act of war, by a hostile power. And then he rises to the occasion to become, you know, this hero, this crusader fighting for others, fighting to, you know, expose the way that heroes have been uh, ignored and sidelined by the government. You know, I, like like who wouldn't want to see themselves that way? Uh, so I think, you know, I think that that's that's where he's coming from. But, you know, I think he's very fucking pleased with himself <laughs> about what he did professionally, unfortunately. 
This is The Popular Show with me, James A. Smith and David Slavik, uh, and our wonderful guest, Natalie Shaw. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, you're going to need to get over to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod and join our little podcast community. We'd love to have you over there helping us grow the project. We're going to talk about long COVID now. Uh, if you want to join us on the podcast, we'd love you to be listening. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. <laughs>